Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb. And I think we're going to have kind of a weird show, but I think it's going to be a good one. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like we're going to have a very normal show, and it's going to be a bad one. I don't like your attitude. Okay, buddy. sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I had I just had to be contrarian. I don't know. You you were you were so optimistic and cheery. I wanted to bring us back down to earth. But maybe you're right. Maybe it will be a good show. A lot of topics to cover this week. A lot of diverse topics. A lot of topics. Some weird stuff. But I think it's going to be good. Uh, the I guess the the plan, the outline is we're going to talk a little bit about Dominaria United. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk level. about gold fishing, which I think is like to me, it's it's a strange thing to talk about. But we had a request for it in the Discord, like more than one request. And and honestly, it makes a lot of sense because we try and approach things as if, you know, people are coming in sort of potentially new through magic. And then we talk about the concept of gold fishing and, and don't even touch on why it might be important or why it might matter or whatever. Or how to do it effectively. Yeah. You just kind and, of glossed over it. So. Yep. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, th- that was a thing that was understood in 2004 or whatever but uh yeah it's been a while since anyone has ever really talked about that and then uh i i had a thing that i wanted to talk about last weekend just kind of slipped my mind and then also you have a a ptq top eight under your belt yeah i do i I don't i I don't even like even want to put it as a notch on my belt honestly like they didn't give you a pin so it doesn't matter yeah yeah if i had the pin on my play mat then i could take credit for it but yeah, so I I don't know. That's that's kind of it, and then maybe some tangents. Who knows? But uh, interesting stuff. A little variety. Uh, start with Dominaria, since sure, yeah. I don't know, it doesn't really always... feel like it now, but that used to be the thing. Was when get some some previews start trickling in, especially there's, for a thing. There's that's too many. Hype. There's too many, Gerald. That's all it is. It's yeah. just like it, it's just constant. So that's why it doesn't feel as special as it usually does. And also like. I had to spend some time understanding which of these cards were actually playable in the world that I exist in and which ones like, like when I see a new card pop up in my feed now, I do not know if it's something I should care about or not. Right. Uh, Which is weird, but ultimately we figured it out. We know these are the cards we should be interested in for our purposes. uh, And we could talk about them a little bit. Well, you see, Brian, I watched the, uh, I don't want to call it a live stream because I didn't watch it live, but you know what I mean? The little, little preview thing that they did, which is where all these cards came from. So I kind of have some idea of what's going on and I don't know why why the, the fake cards are here. Well, please en- enlighten so, me because I didn't I did not do that homework that you did. Uh, and I would like to know, like, I, I see these cards. You're, I assume you're talking about things like the Jasmine Boreal and the Tor Wauki and the Ramirez Di Pietro that are. Brian, uh, do, you know what, about? do you know what all three of these cards have in common? They're all older legends from actual legends. Correct. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I recognize these cards for sure. I certainly have, like, the OG copies floating around somewhere in my collection. They're All those cards are probably $100 now, so. Uh, yeah, I should sell those. Well, did you know, and also side question, would you find it ridiculous to know that uh, wizards apparently located 
massive amounts of cases of legends at a random warehouse of theirs? Uh, I do know. I, I have seen this floating around. I do think it's a little ridiculous that they just had like massive amounts of cases floating around. Uh, it doesn't seem For impossible. Decades. It doesn't decades. seem impossible to me. I, I think that's completely within the realm of possibility. And, uh, you know, I I feel like this should be like on a ledger somewhere. Like if they went and got these cases knowing they were there, that wouldn't shock me whatsoever. The way you're describing it is they were just like, oopsie cases. That That's a little weird to me. Um, yeah, I mean, as the story goes. Yeah, maybe which, that's like a, a narrative thing, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the person who was in charge of it uh, is was Matt Danner, who is like an actual personal friend of mine. And I haven't talked to him about it yet. And okay. I don't I don't know that he would tell me anyway. And this is certainly like tinfoil hattie or whatever, where it's like, yeah, maybe you knew you had them the entire time. And like, this is what you're doing. And like, this is how you're spinning it or whatever. I don't know. But. He was the one that was like, yeah, we just got a call from this warehouse. It was like, yo, we have these things. Do you want them or whatever? And nobody knew that they were there inexplicably, even though it's a lot of products. And yeah, for just 30 years, no one inventoried this stuff, just kept walking by it. And I don't know. It, it is it wild. Is I mean, like theoretically, are there are there alpha boxes out there doing the same thing? Like maybe they should check their warehouses. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, <laughs> Danner just like drives over to this warehouse, picks up all this stuff, and then a bunch of people at Wizards donned some rubber gloves and they opened some booster packs and now they're going to put a lot of these cards into upcoming Dominaria collector boosters. Wild, wild stuff. Very cool, by the way. Like I, I, am, I am into this. I like this happening. Um, I... maybe we'll buy some collector boosters like just uh, i really like these experiences like i don't know if you remember this the zendikar thing where they slipped in I a do. bunch of like dual lands uh, did I you do. ever open a dual land from a pack of zendikar i opened two but i also opened a lot of zendikar me too i opened a lot of it mostly for this reason i don't know why like it just became a quest of mine where i was chasing it uh, i did eventually open one and it was really cool a really cool experience and Maybe they got me again. Maybe they'll trick me into trying to chase down these Legends cards. Yeah, I, I got like a Volcanic and a Scrubland or something, which which was cool, but obviously you're you're chasing like a piece of power or something. something right. Weird. Yeah, I remember getting like a, a, a low-end duel. I want to say also a Scrubland, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I mean, we were testing for a Pro Tour and we were drafting and stuff, and that was kind of like my excuse for opening the product. Um, but... Really, the, the set itself was not that good. So there was no reason I needed to open like four or five cases or whatever I did right. uh, of Zendikar. You know? At the end of it, I had a stack of Gideons I could sell, and then the rest of the set just like went in a box. But uh, then I also had two duels and some of that that gambling itch. Or I, I It's not gambling. It is just like a search for dopamine in, in whatever way it comes. You know, so yeah, that, that got scratched a little bit but it just immediately goes back to like okay that's over and done with i felt good for a little bit now now i need to crack more packs or whatever right yeah it's also strange like when when it was in og zendikar it was like new like you when you open a pack of magic cards then you got your magic cards they all look like magic cards and you got a foil sometimes and that was it that was the extent of like odd experiences you could have now you open a pack of magic cards and like 
literally anything could happen. Like a, a one of those like spring-loaded snakes could pop out of the magic cards. There could be just money folded into it. Uh, you could get Lord of the Rings characters. Maybe there's like a chug jug in there. Literally anything could happen. So I feel like some of that magic of uh, you know this unique novel experience has been sucked out of uh, of the experience at this point. Yeah, OG Zendikar, I was not playing a ton, so I didn't open many boosters. Like, there was a Pro Tour, but I didn't test, and then we did some money drafts or whatever, but not enough for me to realistically open one. And, yeah, between the list and just random inserts and, you know, people post, like, the pictures of you having, like, an Ace of Spades and, like, a Charizard in your hand or whatever, yeah. and it's like, no, that's just a pack of cards now. Yeah, that's that's how it works. So I, I do think some of the, the novelty is gone from this experience, but it's still, like, yeah, it's better than not doing it. It's cool. Yeah. So the the thing with this is, like, well, we're going to put Legends cards in here, and it's Dominaria, and there are a lot of Legends in the set, and the last Dominaria set leaned into that pretty heavily in in ways that I really did enjoy, at least in terms of Limited. Like a lot yep. of the stuff kind of fell flat in constructed, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And for now they're just like, well, let's reimagine some of the iconic legends characters and update them sort of more for modern times. And obviously that that hits commander pretty hard and pretty well. So it looks like there's 48 of these, these box toppers. So, wow. Yeah, maybe you get a box topper Jasmine and a literal Jasmine from Legends in, in your box or something. I think that that'd be sweet. Uh, that's that's interesting. I didn't know there were so many different Legends being converted into box toppers. And is that the only way to get these, or are they in like, man, I know so. Oh, okay. So the, little. like, are there are there Dominaria United Commander boosters? I mean, okay, so they're going to be commander decks, right? But they're not going to have yeah. these cards. So okay. box stoppers, I, if I'm remembering correctly, this was like a week ago at this point. It was, it happened the day that we recorded uh, last week. Right. So it's, it's been basically a full week, but um, the box toppers are all foil and then collector boosters, you can get foil and non-foil. Okay. But the, the collector booster is going to have like the special etch treatment or something. I don't know. Like I, or the box topper is. So I, I imagine that they're going to be different to some degree. You know, it's not like your box topper is something you can just then go open a booster pack or whatever. Oh, I guess you actually can't get the Jasmine in a regular booster box. It has to be a collector booster, I think, but whatever. This, this is all spectacularly stupid, right? Like, like the fact that these are the discussions we have now, it, it is all very, very silly, right? Like I'm not just being old and cranky. Like it, it's too much, right? Like there's nobody who doesn't believe this isn't, just like suck is, as much profit as you possibly can out of this. It is a lot. And I don't know, man, I think that there's probably something else that you can do with like 500 boxes of legends than just insert them into booster packs. Like obviously that is going to sell packs. You have, you have data on that. Yeah. Because when they did the buried treasures or whatever, it's like that shit sold. Yep. And I, I think the novelty has worn off a little bit. I don't think that it's going to be the main thing behind selling the set. And I don't necessarily think that this set is going to sell like twice as much as the last set or whatever. So, yeah, it's worn off a little bit and it is all kind of silly. But I think the before we, we just knew everything. We knew every magic card. Everything was pretty simple. Now we kind of don't. It's a lot to 
keep track of. But I think the thing that you're supposed to do is just not keep track of it. Correct. That is is the correct answer. Yeah, before it was like, yeah, we do know everything. And this is a, a big part of our, you know, life. And it is basically like a lifestyle. And it feels weird to then lose sort of the grasp on that but that's just kind of where we are like we're not we're not supposed to know literally every single magic card i think yes it's interesting like we almost got back to like we throw this phrase around a lot but magic is garfield intended where like you're just not supposed to have that level of knowledge and like you sit down to play and you see a new card for the first time like we got back there by just making as many fucking magic cards as we could, like just opening the fire hose and blasting everyone in the face with it. And it kind of warped back around to, and, I, and putting, I can't keep track of these cards anymore. Putting just random stuff in booster packs too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can you tell me all 600 cards or 800 cards or whatever that's on the list? Of course can you, not. Can you tell me half? No, I, I couldn't tell you more than 10. I don't yeah. think. Yeah. It's, it's way, way too much to keep track of. And, uh, if people are enjoying it, that's cool. Anyway, as far as the actual set, they previewed five cards. Um, talked about the set a little bit, and you know there were uh, the the Pyrexian Praetors lurking in some of the last sets, and it's like there, it's going to be a big year for storyline. I think that's good. Good. I, I felt like the focus shifted away from that a little bit. Nice to see that becoming a focal point again you you want to read these five cards should i do it yeah talk let's about talk them. about them yeah all right lanor loam speaker one g one three creature after a tap add one man of any color tap target land you control becomes a three three elemental creature with haste until end of turn it's still a land activate only as a sorcery pretty cool uh, i like when your your ramp spells have this late game function of producing damage as well i think like even though a lot of the numbers and stats on this card aren't necessarily overwhelming at first blush. If there is space for a two mana accelerator in standard and the removal lines up as such where like one three isn't particularly vulnerable, like if there's a lot of say minus two or like shock sized removal, I think this card could be quite impactful. Um, but it's really got to line up well with the format and it's not like on its face, super powerful, super exciting, but a card that could definitely see some play. Yeah, there's been a lot of two mana accelerants in the last two or three years that have seen play when they got previewed and it was just like, I don't know, Leafkin Druid or whatever. It's like, is this good enough? I don't know. Like, I guess you'll play it if your deck really needs it or wants it or whatever. Yeah, and they've it, mostly proven good enough, I think. Like, they've all seen yeah. some spot play, so. Right, so I think this is about the same. I And I do like the aspect of like, oh, this scales pretty well into the late game and then there's mm-hmm. like some backdoor synergy stuff where it's like i don't know maybe you have things to do with extra creatures or you have sacrifice effects or something where this continually uh can can generate an extra body for you on, yep. on certain turns or whatever the the thing i don't like about this though is it doesn't solve the problem of these being like a bad top deck right like you you draw this on turn eight or something and yes in theory it's it's better than drawing a leaf druid but it, it still doesn't solve that problem of like it feeling bad to draw pretty you, late. You can't solve the problem entirely, but like that, they're supposed to have that weakness, right? Like if you make it so your ramp spell is 
always good at all points in the game, then they become impressive. So it's got to it's got to toe that line very carefully, I think. And I think this is a good version of doing that. Like you find this on turn four and five, it's still pretty impactful to your your clock, your battlefield presence. That's good. As you get to like nine and ten, yes, these bodies get outscaled pretty hard. And of course, you still always need to like untap and take more time with it. So I, I think this kind of falls in the sweet spot in terms of power level of fulfilling that role of scaling into the late game, but not doing so in a way that invalidates like any other card choice, which is what we saw out of some past ramp spells. Yeah. No, I, I agree with all that, but I'm just saying it's like you're you're kind of going the extra mile to make sure that this scales a little bit better. But it's like that is that's the overarching problem is drawing it late and having it be pretty bad. And I think that this this still has that issue. And yeah, maybe maybe you're not trying to solve everything, but it's like I, I don't want it to make it oppressive or anything. I just want to make it not feel bad. Yep. Yeah, I feel that. Uh, next up, Evolve Sleeper, a little black figure of destiny b11 creature human b this becomes a human cleric with base power and toughness 2 2 uh 1b if this is a cleric put a death touch counter on it and it becomes a phyrexian human cleric with base power and toughness 3 3 and then 1bb if this is a phyrexian put a plus one plus one counter on it then you draw a card and you lose a life and the thing that i really like about this is that that third ability just keeps on going yeah, just jam that over and over. That's that's very cool. Uh, very nice source of late game card advantage. Talking about a card that scales throughout the game. Yeah, um, probably not too unhappy to draw this when you have six lands or whatever. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. And uh, this card's pretty exciting to me. I, I I generally like figure of destiny type setups. I think they lead to interesting play. Uh, even like Ascendant Spirit, like not a card that saw a ton of play, but I thought was really cool. And when it does show up, it sort of earns its place like it does something really neat really unique so i'm always happy to see more of this effect but this one is really cool and just how hard it can scale into the late game if you ever find yourself in like a very mana intensive situation uh you know black often flirts with that too like things like uh you know cabal coffer type effects and anything else uh what's the other one cryptgeist was the one i think that uh all your swamps tapped for an additional beast so from time to time like Black does this big mana thing, and I think this would be a really, really cool sync, uh, a way to enable like a mid-range strategy that was doing that type of stuff. So I want to keep my eye on this for that purpose, but even it's just like a card that is probably pretty good on its face. I, I really like Evolve Sleeper. There was a period, too, where this would have just been absurdly good for Pioneer. Mm. Mm. And yeah, in the model Black decks. Yeah, exactly. And I, I unfortunately, I think we're a little bit past that point. Yeah, I mean, is this enough to reopen that door, or can you at least consider it? I mean, I don't, I don't think that's the problem they had necessarily. You know, it's okay. just at this point, the rest of the format has sort of passed them by. Like enough cards have gotten yep. printed that have powered up existing decks. It's just like we got we got more dual lands and things like Fable, and uh, the, the existing decks are just so much better. Where it's like casting Scrap Heap Scrounger or whatever is not what you want to really be doing. But right. I don't know if people have talked about unbanning smuggler's copter for that reason to maybe try and like bring these sorts of decks back and i don't feel like that is a good solution to that problem but it would certainly help that problem any interest in this is like a tribal card does this do anything for humans or do they just have such a hard time like because their mana base is so focused on casting their spells they have a hard time enabling these type of effects and, well, and actually paying these costs 
uh, secluded courtyard, the new unclaimed territory. Works on both sides. Can can activate abilities. Yep. And there have been some human sex that have showed up. Like I, when when I went to my PTQ, I was talking to Tommy Ashton, and he was talking about the the pioneer one he had played. I think the previous week or something, and like the top four was a human's mirror, is like mono white versus bant, and then. I get home, I start watching some streams and there's like some Mardu humans and stuff. So it's like those those decks are seeing play. Yep. It was and, at my Pioneer PTQ as well. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, one one of the big weaknesses for humans in Pioneer specifically is the lack of good one drops. Like they're they're effectively like splashing experiment one in in terms of the Bant version. And uh the the Mardu ones playing like blood soak champion and stuff. So it's like, yeah, this could absolutely make the cut. Like, I, I don't know how many games you're going to mess around with like pumping this thing, but it's like, obviously you, you can flood out in a lot of instances. Yeah. So I, I think that this is definitely a card that people are going to try and are going to play with. And I mean, it's almost certainly going to make the cut because the next best thing you have is like three wood inspector. So, right. Yeah. I'm interested to keep an eye on this one, multiple formats. I think this is a really cool print. Next up, Temporal Firestorm, 3RR Sorcery, Kicker, 1-Dub, and or 1-U. So Kicker's back. I mean, Kicker's in every set. But. Yeah, every set is just, every ability is just Kicker, so. All right, so five mana. Couple, a couple different ways to kick it. Choose up to X creatures and or planeswalkers you control, where X is the number of times the spell was kicked. Those permanents phase out. This deals five damage to each creature in each planeswalker. Also, this card just has absurdly badass art. Yeah, very cool. Also, you could just take all this kicker stuff off this card, and it's still an important card for Let's like. Let's just burn down the house. Yeah, it, it, we've seen how much that effect can matter. So, you know, if this has a role. How much the kicker stuff matters is going to be entirely format dependent, uh, entirely context dependent. So I don't even have to evaluate that. But I, I already know this is like a card that we should keep track of and should matter in the format so yeah and i i mean this this would see play this would be right at home in any of the various like just guy gold span dragon decks right yeah yeah i mean wandering emperor setups are great with this right where you just yeah. like protect your wandering emperor after the sweeper and uh I, I think multiple decks will be interested in this effect and i i expect to see this on tables when this set comes out for a brief moment then in graveyards Correct. Uh, Shivan Devastator, XR, 0, 0, Creature Dragon Hydra, Flying Haste. This enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it. And also, I have a funny story to go along with this. This is this is boring as shit, right? Like, I, I don't even, I'm not even saying whether it's good or bad. I think it probably has a home and will probably have a use. Um, it, it, it's, that kind of flexibility is very important, very nice. Do you, do you say it's boring because it's a mythic? Yeah, yeah, I think it's just like not what I expect a mythic to do. Like this is very vanilla, very uh, safe for rare in terms of like the abilities that's on it. And what that suggests to me is that this card is actually cracked and very, very important to keep track of because if it's getting to mythic with these very like innocuous abilities and stats, it's it's probably doing way more than it appears to do on its face. You remember Miscutter Hydra? Yeah, absolutely. Dude, that that at least had pro blue and was only a rare. Yeah. And people still initially were like 
oh, this sucks. It's it's just really bad rate, you know? And then I look at the dragon, like, granted, you know, flying uh, leads to it probably being able to connect a lot more often than Miss Cutter Hydra did. Well, like not really, though, because the context for Miss Cutter Hydra was into the mono blue decks. So, like, it was it was actually fantastic in that spot. Yes, but, I, okay, so, like, there there were definitely moments where you played the main deck because mono blue was prevalent. And right. then you're talking about top decking it in mid-game situations or it being, like, the last card that you cast, uh, having held it the, the entire game. And yeah. just, like, does it actually get to do the thing that you want it to do, which is kind of, like, be a fireball to finish off your opponent or whatever. Right. And but we also the, had Nick those, too, so we were making them, like, particularly large. I, I think I have my time frames right. I remember Miss Carter Hydra alongside Nick Yeah, those, so. I mean, Miss Carter Hydra was not a great plan on a devotion because you weren't normally putting the pressure on them. So it was, like, it was way better in the monster decks. Mm, yep. Yep. So the the Devo decks, at least from my experience, I was playing like Satessan Tactics instead of stuff like Miscutter because sure, sure, yeah, just needed to, to kill their board and they were still at 20, so I'm not going to race them with the Hydra or whatever. But anyway, it's like, uh, okay, you know, 4-4 four, four Hydra, 5-5 five, five Hydra, but then it's just like, well, the ground is kind of locked up, whereas the Dragon is like, all right, you know, chunky for four. Now you're you're pretty low and you have to face down this threat. And for, un unless you're, using Hydra specifically to just like hose an entire archetype, right? Like this is certainly a much better way of being a recursive fireball sort of thing. So like you're getting, mm -hmm. you're getting a lot of, a lot of bang for your buck, even though it looks like, Oh, this is like fireball. They can't kill a creature or whatever. But my story with this is I remember uh, Ben Blyweiss writing his preview article and he was just like, yeah, no matter what, this is just a bad deal at any point in the game. He's like, what do you want? Two mana for a one, one haste or, uh, like five mana for a four four or whatever he's like this card sucks and then this was one of the very few times i and i might I, I don't think i can remember another time where like aaron forsyth showed up in the comments of an scg article where he's just like dude what the hell are you talking about what do you want <laughs> what do you want like it's a good question like yes at, at any point this is a bad deal but it's there's all flexibility there's yeah. modality yeah and and ben like they just argued they just they just went off just like two two you know four-year-old dudes like heads of their companies just like arguing about this stupid hydra and i think part of the frustration was aaron knew that the card was good and he's just like dude what the hell are you saying and it, it wasn't like aaron saw this one comment and went off i think it was just like a, a long line of things that ben had said where aaron is just like dude what the hell oh sure all like of these social media interactions are death by a thousand cuts where you finally just snap and you're like i need to tell this idiot what's up yeah uh so then that happened and it, you know people are like oh that's weird and then yeah miss cutter hydra was like four of in all the sideboards and like showing up in main decks and stuff and uh so for anyone that, that poo poos on this card like granted yes obviously miss cutter had a pretty easy target for not only mono blue but like the blue white control decks too but I don't know, man. If we're talking about playing like the sort of like Goldspan Dragon, uh, uh, Seekers Chariot, sort of like mid-range decks, it's like, yeah, Flying Hasters are good in like mid-range mirrors. I don't know what to tell you. And there's there's a lot of treasure stuff too, yep. still. And they're all still good. And I, I, I believe I, all of that. And it's still boring as hell. It, it, okay. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not boring. I'm just saying the like card is good and 
you know, we'll probably see play and all the people that are just going to be like, this is a bad deal at any spot. It's like, shut up, Flywise. <laughs> it's it's all the deals. Yeah, exactly. Is is all of the deals. Uh, Mythic Rare, that's weird, but maybe it, it really messed up Limited at Rare. I don't know. Well, that that's the thing that stood out to me. Like, it seems like it absolutely would. Like, way too many games would just end to this card if it was a Rare, so. Yeah. All right, last card. Jaya. Fiery Negotiator, 2RR, 4 Starting Loyalty, Legendary Planeswalker Jaya, plus 1, create a 1-1 red monk creature token with prowess, minus 1, exile the top 2 cards of your library, choose one of them, you may play that card this turn, minus 2, choose target creature and opponent controls, whenever you attack this turn, Jaya deals damage equal to the number of attacking creatures to that creature, and minus eight, you get an emblem with whenever you cast a red instant or sorcery spell, copy it twice. You may choose new targets for the copies. Uh, making some things to maybe protect herself and work off the negative two. The things that she makes are not doing a great job of protecting because you're probably like tapped out from guessing your thing and can't trigger prowess. So this is this is like an aggro card or like mid-range card sideboard or something. Yeah. Uh, the minus two doesn't seem particularly effective at killing stuff, but maybe there's more go wide stuff or the average size is pretty small. I don't know. And then the, the thing that stood out to me was the exile, the top two cards of your library and you have to choose one of them, which is, I don't know. It's they, they keep changing the templating on this stuff. Like these effects. Yeah. Yeah. This is a new way of doing it. And I don't, I don't mind it. It is kind of weird to, you know, flip over two spells to a unlucky witness, and then your opponent having to go through combat with you having two different combat tricks or whatever, and not a ton to play around. So, yeah, that's that's true. I, I don't know. I value consistency in these type of effects. Like it's, uh, it was it was actually it was a really interesting point. Uh, so I was I was playing my top eight match in the the Pioneer PTQ. And my opponent, who's who's a good friend of mine, misplayed his Storm the Festival and went uh, six cards deep and then realized it. And because there was no really like judge staff to speak of, we just like unwounded ourselves and dealt with it. Um, but we got to thinking, like, why did you make that mistake? And company. yeah, yeah, company goes six cards deep. And earlier, like in that game, I had cast like. Maybe it was not that game. Maybe it was a different game. But I had cast Dig Through Time and went seven cards deep. And it's just like we're actually covering all of these numbers across a bunch of different effects. And especially like Company Storm the Festival are very, very close to each other in terms of color, in terms of like feel. So it, it's an understandable mistake. And that's the type of thing you introduce when you like change these things subtly over and over. So I agree with you. Like I, I prefer this be a little bit more consistent rather than try and add uh, a little bit of flavor or just uniqueness to the card but in terms of just this card i i think this is really good like all of these modes are a little dependent on things working in your favor like i think this card is really good at pressing the advantage if you're able to like establish battlefield superiority across the first couple turns and then getting to jaya i think you're going to snowball a game really really hard like just incredibly hard um but it it does okay on defense like it it goes up to five loyalty right away with a blocker in play next turn you get to minus go two cards deep looking for whatever you need to stabilize at that point so 
uh, doing a really good job of finding answers. Uh, four abilities always plays better than you would expect, like the versatility. Even if one of the modes is like somewhat blank, like if the minus two is something that is only a niche thing you do to control uh, a certain very prolific small creature in the format, fine. I think that's a completely use usable uh, application of that. And also, again, like just the snowballing thing. If you're on the battlefield, your opponent like tries to play a blocker to stabilize and you just blow it up on the spot you're going to snowball games really hard. So I'm pretty excited about this card. I think it is on its face of a higher level than a lot of Planeswalkers we've seen recently, where it just like does a bunch of things and does them all pretty well. Um, and I do think the pendulum is swinging back towards powerful Planeswalkers at this point. You know, look at Wandering Emperor, look at Obnixilis somewhat. Ob Obnixilis making its impact more, I think, in older formats than standard. Kaito solid too. Kaido, yeah, that's another really good example. So I think we're swinging back in that direction again where Planeswalkers are starting to have a larger part of the like play pie assigned to them. And I think Jaya very much is in line with that philosophy. Yeah, the... the Okay, so in, in terms of the exile, the top whatever cards, I think they're they're finding their footing in, in what they want to do with that. Sure. And how they want to template it and stuff. And I think that this is a step in the right direction just for clarity and everything. And I hope that 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 does continue one way or the other, that they just, you know, figure out. Stick how, to how, it. Yeah. So I, th I think that that'll happen eventually. So I'm, I'm not too mad about like, oh, all the stuff has been different lately because this is still a thing that they've been hashing out with Red over the last few years and trying right. to get them. and. A source of card advantage and stuff and it's worked really well right like so many of these, has, yeah. these effects and it's really good so i'm down with them trying new things trying to figure it out trying to solidify it uh take the opportunity to experiment with different stuff when they have the time versus like all right lock it in we're we're gonna go with this for forever and someone eventually realized like hey this is this has been pretty bad we could have changed this you know yeah but the the thing with this card is is like for for four mana planeswalker you're used to it sort of coming down and it's like, oh, okay, like now, now the game is totally out of reach where it's like you go like creature, creature Gideon or Wandering Emperor or something. And, and it's just like, oh, you have this insurmountable advantage and like Jaya's like make a one, one you know? Um, but you're, you're right that all the abilities are really good and all also do very different things, which are all very helpful. So I, I do think that at, at the top end, it's pretty solid, but it's not like Gideon where it, it's just going to like solo games for you. Although the, the card drawing thing is really powerful, like actually digging versus say Chandra tortured defiance, just like exile a land and deal you two kind of thing. It's like Chandra is not super effective as a card advantage card engine. Advantage. Whereas I think yep. Jaya actually is. I agree. Yeah. And I, I, I like this approach though, like com in comparison to something like Gideon, this is sort of a Jack of all trades, master of none. Whereas Gideon was just like brutally good at the thing it did. Right. Yep. And it, it pretty much only did that one thing. To me, the Planeswalker model is better served when you're just like covering a broad spectrum of things and diversifying the gameplay experience rather than just saying this thing closes the door and ends the game in the same fashion over and over and over. Um, so so hopefully that's the way Jaya plays out. It just does like a bunch of different things all at like an okay rate and the sum is worth more than its parts. Agreed. All right, no more Dominaria for now at least. I'm sure previews will start up at some point and we'll talk about it in depth. I guess maybe because it also depends on whether or not they want to try and 
roll standard back into things because yeah. right now it's been yep. all pioneer, all modern. They've moved away from standard because format was pretty bad for a while. But now I think, like, obviously, if you look at Magic Online, the format looks heinous because it's just all just guy and yep. people have played challenges where they just play like nightmare matches or whatever. Um, I think if it, we were seeing more standard be played, like that would not be the case. But I agree. I agree. Like, it, it does I mean, look awful, though, when you look at the Magic Online results. Yeah, but for, for last season, obviously, we're going to have a rotation and everything. So things are going to change. But it's like the, the mana was good. A lot of the colors were represented and there were like fun things to do and we're kind of back to like mid-range standard with admittedly some gold span dragon unfairness stuff at the top end or whatever but i don't know you you look at the top eight decks from the arena pt and it was like you know here's a naya mid-range here's a jund mid-range here's esper like it looks really cool to me and i i hope that i don't know people start liking standard again and wizards does something about it but if not i guess oh well yeah i just don't know if you can reopen standard once you've closed it because like now we've gotten used to the idea that we don't have to buy a new set of cards every uh i don't know constantly i guess we just like get to pick and choose what small number of cards we need from each set to update our pioneer or modern decks as opposed to i need to own absolutely every card that comes out and i don't think you could talk me back into the mode of just like i buy four of everything so i have a full standard set i it seems unlikely i'll ever go down that road again also they've learned they don't have to sell cards that way like i think that was a yeah. big portion of like why standard existed and they're like this is our thing to sell cards on a month-to-month -month basis and keep people interested and like when it didn't happen they made more money than ever and sold more cards than ever. So I I don't think they're going to be super like rushing, beating down the door to return to that mode of producing cards and producing the band. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's I, I would really want like some. Uh, it was like business intelligence work done on that sort of stuff. Right. And actually figuring out what was going on there, because. Yes, there are other reasons for folks to buy cards, primarily Commander, but would that have been better or worse if you were then also focusing on Standard at that time? No idea. You know, no idea. And I, I don't think they're even going to explore these issues because, like, money solves all else. Like, if you right. weren't making a bunch of money, you would try and figure this out where you're just printing money hand over fist. It's just like, well, keep doing what we're doing. Why are we worried about it? Well, also that, and then it's like, well, let's make more products. Yep. If people are just going to buy them, let's do more. Yep. All right. Uh, goldfishing. Yeah. So last week talked about for my my preparation was just uh, every every couple of nights I would be putting away laundry or something. And then in the meantime, I'd be like, ooh, here's a, a four color deck sleeved on my desk or whatever. So I just sit down and goldfish a few games, you know? And then through that, that led to me kind of tweaking and tuning where it's like, ah, this does kind of feel like a land light or uh, when I have the opportunity to kind of like combo off with Risen Reef and have these big turns. I have found that if I don't have a third ephemerate in my deck, I often putter out. Whereas if I have the third ephemerate, I'm able to basically turn through my entire deck and then the main deck had like one copy of Endurance and I could just like keep going. 
And the, the ephemerate was relevant for blinking Omnath, resetting it, and then continuing to chain with Risen Reef and then generating more mana that way. Whereas if you can't do that consistently, it's like, yeah, you get like the, the first spike of mana off the Omnath, but then eventually you just like burn out and have no mana to spend on your cards and stuff. So mm-hmm. goldfishing to me is basically getting a feel for how your deck operates. And I, <laughs> as silly as it sounds, I've, I've goldfished like do nothing control decks, right? It's just like you, you just shuffle up draw your opening hand, play the game as if you're playing against an opponent. Kind of weird to do when you have a bunch of like spot removal and counter spells and whatnot, but it has, it has still been effective for me. And I think the thing that makes it maybe different for me, for someone else is that basically at all times I am trying to like analyze the game and figure out what's happening and figure out, you know, what would make, this spot better what would make the deck run a little bit smoother like do i have a wide range of keepable hands things like that and a lot of it is just like going off of feel and experience but a lot of it too is just like going off of gold fishing and whatnot and i don't know it's you go to like moxfield or whatever and they have stuff like draw a sample hand you know and i think that people are used to that sort of experience but don't necessarily look into what they can take away from, you know, maybe running out the first five turns of a game with their deck and seeing how it feels and what it's capable of and like what your deck needs and whatnot. Yeah, one of the things I would uh, point out with goldfishing is that it's a lot like jamming games where if you just sit down and you think you're going to get better just because you've played X number of games. That's that's misunderstanding what you're actually doing. Correct. When you're, you're goldfishing, you're trying to actually determine something and you need to know what you're trying to determine. So you sit down and you go, in your instance where you're goldfishing a control deck, it works because you're saying, how do my answers line up with what I perceive the threats of the format to be? So if you know on average turn one mana elf, turn two three drop planeswalk like if you just know basically how these things flow and you're analyzing your hand and how it compares to those things it's pretty easy to say okay this is keeping up this isn't keeping up i need to add x i need to add y and as long as you're going into the process with something clear in mind like in in my instance i was goldfishing uh lotus field a lot and lotus field is kind of the deck that's geared for goldfishing because it mostly does ignore what its opponents does what what its opponents are doing and tries to go over the top so what i needed to determine was you know when can i go for it what do i actually need to do in my first two or three turns to make sure my fourth turn is successful uh what happens if i lose my two best cards so i say what if what if my opponent thought seizes me twice and like how does my game plan play out from there how much can i mulligan how low of a base can i go to and still successfully do my thing and i think that was actually one of the most critical things I learned was just like complete embrace of Mulligan and never keep a sketchy hand that like needs to improve in such a way until you're down to like five cards, because you're just going to find good five card hands very consistently. When you start getting in the five card range, that's when you start thinking about, Oh, okay. I don't have a green source, but you know, I can, if I hit, I'm this percent to do it. So I won't go to four, but the idea that like i know i can go to five very very happily and i can even consider going to four in some instances that comes from me goldfishing a bunch that and also just like 
knowing what things I need to have in hand and what percentage chance that has of killing my opponent and whether it's better to save those resources for a future turn or just use them now that came up over and over throughout my PTQ. And had I not goldfished a bunch, there's no way I would have understood those situations. Yeah. The the thing that I will say about this is like, while it is valuable, there are better alternatives. Certainly, you know, like if say you and I live together or whatever, I think it would be, oh, more we should valuable. be playing games. Yeah. Yeah. It would be more valuable for me to be like, Hey, uh you know i want to test against murktide or whatever and then we sit down with an agenda and try and figure something out but you know not having an opponent uh living in a place where i don't really know anyone and not really wanting to just like venture to a random card store anyway because it's like i, I also want like quality of opponent right yeah. and i don't know what i'm gonna get going to a random fnm or anything and then there's also just like the simplicity and the ease of it where I could do it while I was like putting away laundry, you know, for yep. spend like 10, 15 minutes doing it a couple times and then have some thoughts and kind of like ruminate on that, like come back, maybe make some changes, be like, oh, okay, like I'll I'll add the third Utopia Sprawl back in and like, you know, see how that changes things or just like cut them entirely, which is what I ended up doing mostly as a result of cold fishing, you know? So it's no substitute for actually playing games and similarly to what you're saying with you know goldfishing and trying to figure out a specific thing that's what you should be doing when you play against actual opponents too and always also just be thinking about the game and what is going on as it is happening and what is causing you to win or lose or fall behind or or stay ahead or how effective was your sideboard at fighting what they were trying to do in the post-board games. Like, these are all things that you should be thinking while you play the game of Magic. And I realized that when you are in that moment and you are playing the game, you are mostly thinking about the game. But, like, I can't help also analyze, like, all right, I lost. Like, what, what happened to cause me to lose? And is there some way that I can go about fixing it? So I think there are folks that are not thinking about it too much which i understand especially if like if you're well practiced and you can basically go on autopilot and it doesn't take a lot of brain power to actually figure out what's going on in the games and what you should be doing and everything then it frees up a lot of space to also just be thinking about like the matchup and what matters and, and stuff like that and then the other thing is i look at a lot of deck lists and a lot of discourse and you know things that people are talking about as far as like this is how i'd sideboard in this matchup blah 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 so i i have a lot of information and a lot of, of of a base to go off of as far as when i'm trying to solve a problem what would actually do it and you know some of that is like format knowledge and deck building knowledge and remembering past versions of these deck lists and combinations of things that people use to approach matchups and stuff so I mean, at this point, like the Risen Reef stuff was kind of old hat, right? Like it was there for a while. And then that to me looked like the best version of the deck because it was a little bit more proactive, but it also had like a bunch of clunkers in it, like Eladomri's Call and stuff that I didn't really like. And then I saw the Traverse version, which uh, initially just like showed up in a random Magic Online 5.0. And I think my my initial thought was like, this seems like, absurdly good and i also feel like it's not going to catch on because it's exactly the type of thing that i think people are like haha random 
Komodo deck is like putting Bobble in Traverse into five color. Like this isn't Death Shadow, blah, blah, blah. And it also did take a while for that to catch on. But I remember seeing that and being like, this is so much better for the Risen Reef deck than Eladomri's Call of Duty. So then when it came time to actually like sit down and think about what I wanted to play, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to jam these two things together, right? And it's like having that backlog of knowledge allowed me to try and like problem solve for the things that I expected. And if you're not paying attention to that stuff and not remembering that stuff, then when you sit down to try and figure out how to solve a problem, like you, you just don't have the foundation to be able to do it, right? You're just like waiting for someone else to solve it for you. So I think goldfishing is is helpful for when you have that base also. Mm-hmm. No, that's a that's a really good way of putting it. And I think like it all comes back to this overarching theory of magic where you're trying to garner, you can never get enough information in magic. You'll never be able to get like the concrete answer, the 100% definitive matchup spread. It, it just doesn't exist. Your sample sizes can't get large enough. So you need to figure out what gets you the most return on your time investment possible. And there's diminishing returns for all things. But I think some of the highest, highest, highest returns you can get is exactly what you're describing, just being like plugged in, keeping an eye on everything, understanding all the technology, all the tools, and then being able to like rapidly insert that in places. I, I just think like that's where the biggest returns lie. And goldfishing is a small but crucial part of that where, you know, you're not doing your 100 games of the matchup, but you are doing just enough to say, OK, this functions the way I thought it would. Uh, the timing of this lines up properly. I need my third ephemerate because this is how I'm going to combo off in these spots. Like those small, small tweaks, the returns you got on your gold fishing time are so, so high in comparison to like how much time you would have had to put in in gameplay time to eventually reach those same conclusions, I think. Yeah, and I mean, gameplay time, especially if you get to play against a good opponent playing the matchup that you don't know about, like it's going to be so much faster than just like old fishing and your confidence level is going to be higher too, because you can have a theory for how the game is going to play out and how it's going to feel and what would solve that problem or whatever, but there is no substitute for actually going through and doing it. Right. But at the same time, it's like, I'm here by myself. I got, I got some free time while I'm walking around the house. I like having magic cards in my hand, just straight up. And the other part of it too was like, this is an 80 card deck and I hate, big decks and i gotta get used to like shuffling this thing mm -hmm. so yeah all important uh yeah a lot of it a lot of it did help i i think that without it i would have been starting off way behind from where i was but it's not a thing that's going to get you to to like across the finish line by itself yep yep and nothing nothing by itself will in magic that, that's just the bottom line like yeah, it's, it's always a combination. combination of so many things so yeah like in addition to just like having a playtest partner who you you trust to play well and have a good understanding of things and everything like there there really is no substitute for like playing the matchup and then also talking to someone about it who is like on the other side or like then switching the matchup and seeing what their impression is and everything. So that is always going to be the best thing, but I don't know, I can't can't clone myself. Yep. At least that I know of. So not yet. Not yet. All right, uh other thing from last week, which I don't know, man, I, we could skip at this point. We're 50 minutes in, but um, I will I will real, real quickly say two things. First is that if you are clear about the game state and the actions that you are taking 
And if you are unsure about what your opponent is doing and you are clear with them or ask them to clarify, you will not run into any issues. But when you are not going the extra mile to be clear, that is when you know, you end up drawing an extra card, they end up drawing an extra card. You know, someone's like, oh, wait, I had a response, but like you you didn't say that you were going to draw a card or whatever. And I don't know. I just always want to be very clear about the board state and what's going on because A, I care about the integrity of the game and I want that to be upheld. And the other thing is like, if I draw, like say, say I just like, on turn two, I just like play an Ice Fang and like put a card in my hand and don't wait for a response from my opponent. And turns out they want to do something like I'm going to feel really bad in that situation, you know? So I just make sure to be clear that, you know, this thing like, you know, can I draw or trigger or whatever and try and get like a response from them before I actually put a card into my hand. Because like if I if I do that and then they're going to do something else the game's kind of messed up now. And like, yeah, it's fixable, but it's like, you can just avoid all these mistakes entirely. I think this is especially true at this like PPTQ level. Uh, just met a bunch of people who are like coming from arena. Uh, a lot of fans of the podcast who are like, I found arena that I found the podcast, which was really, really cool to hear. Uh, I'm happy that folks have gotten acclimated to the game that way, but uh, I, there's going to be some, some issues with like administering the game state. And I think extra clarity at this moment is particularly important. Uh, I brought my multiple colors. I had, I had all five colors of dice with me when I went to this PTQ to, to track my mana in front of my opponents. Uh, well, probably just as much for me as well and make sure I didn't mess things up. But I, I, think, I think it's critical. I think it's critical to communicate well and to express yourself well. And it's, it's a part of the live magic process that all of us have to get back into. Uh, I was surprised actually at how like, quickly i fell back into it i was a little concerned but i it, it was like riding a bike very quickly got used to how things worked yeah so i don't know i just had a few things come up where it was just like you know people trying to to vent to me or whatever and it's just like look if you were just clear about stuff you would never be in this situation so like why were you just not clear and this this happens so much where just like people are like accumulating warnings or like getting game losses or whatever and it's just like how does this happen to people and like, why do they do it? And I, th I think the, the conclusion that I came to is like, I, I really do care about the integrity of the game state and having it be understood what's going on at all times. And, you know, certainly that's to my detriment at times in terms of like wins or losses or whatever, where I could be like giving information away or yeah, just like kind of keying my opponent into what is going to happen and like maybe they should kill this thing or counter this thing or whatever but like i don't i don't care i would rather that happen than me end up drawing an extra card because i wasn't clear and then having to like go through that whole process of fix it and accumulating warnings and stuff like that it's like i i do care about that stuff and i i just i i'm very confused as to why people don't care and aren't going to feel bad if they mess up the game state and like draw a card when their opponent wanted to do something or whatever, you know, it's just baffling. To me. I'm, I'm sure at this point, wizarding folks are sick of hearing me talk about flesh and blood. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep doing it. I just spend a lot of time playing the game, working on the game. So things pop up a lot in my brain, but one, one of the really cool things 
I, I liked when I first found Flesh and Blood is that it's just like actually in the rules where it says it's just good etiquette to inform your opponent of everything that's going on with your cards. So like when you play an attack in Flesh and Blood, like the, the expectation is you just go attack for nine, it has dominate and go again plus from this ability like you just lay it all out there's no like just move your thing forward and let your opponent figure it out you do all the work for them and you communicate clearly and i love it i think it's just like such a good administration of game state and the fact that it's become like a cultural thing in the game is uh it's really nice it's just it's just nice to have that level of clarity from all players yeah i I love that especially at a smaller level where or even in like magic current times where it's like not everyone knows all the text on all the cards oh yeah definitely definitely so yeah you can you can try and be big fish little pond and like shark your opponent and i remember people doing this back in the day where they would like play the card and read like half the text on it or something you know and just like purposefully mislead their opponent Mm -hmm. and it just like at at the time it was like (laughs) just so unbelievably scummy you know but there were just like multiple instances of that happening in the mid 2000s. Yeah, and it was just the culture, right? Yeah. I, I think the culture around your game matters so much. And it's it's why like it's why I do try to be like very uh j- just good about these type of things like I, I want to try and like set an example as silly as that sounds, but I j- I just want to do things correctly and hope that other people follow that lead and and make the game a better place. Yeah, I so I try to do that. And I would think that if you were paying attention to how I conduct myself during a match and what the experience is of playing against me or whatever, you would maybe pick up on the fact that like, Oh, he is like very clear. And there like, there are never any weird discrepancies or like life total discrepancies too. Like how often does that happen where it's just like, Oh, I thought you were at seven and you're actually at nine. It's like, well, you, you didn't say anything for the last four turns. Yeah. Check life totals is every time there's a life total change. I try and confirm. So right stuff like and, that really matters and i i think that that's part of it too where it's like well maybe if they think that i'm at a higher life total then they're they're not gonna be as aggressive and not attack me and maybe i'll get an extra turn or something it's like, like no just like how about you just keep the game as it should be yep but yeah i mean pe- people just don't necessarily pick up on that so it's sometimes you just have to hit them over the head with hammer and be like yo i do these things for this reason and it it matters to me and i wish that it mattered to you it's good policy. I'm right there with you. And obviously this is like a, a subtweet or whatever, but we're not going to get into that. <laughs> okay. Uh, we all subtweet sometimes. I'll allow it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, obviously I'm saying it for a reason, right? So I'm just going to, I'll just say it. I don't, I don't care, but uh, I don't have to get into like the specific situation because ultimately it doesn't matter, but like all those things apply. And I, I just, it left me thinking about it for a long time. It's like, why don't yeah. people care about this? Yeah, it's important. Anyway, man, hour hour into the podcast. Let's talk about Lotus Field. Let's talk about Pioneer, your experience. Uh, what was the matchup spread that you played against, if you remember? Uh, pretty diverse, actually. I I, I may like get small details wrong. Uh, I played against Cat Oven, then I played against uh, Red Black Sacrifice, like or like the Red Black mid range deck um blue black control blue white control mono blue spirits and then mono green in the top eight uh lost to mono green in the top eight mono green ultimately wins the tournament my cards my friend dispatching me from the top eight so so pretty pretty offended by that but uh yeah it was an interesting experience 
I am going to be frank. I didn't have a lot of fun. Um, some of that is my fault. Deck selection, like it just, you know, I'm playing Lotus Field. It kind of just felt like I drew my cards and then I did my stuff. And sometimes I won, sometimes I lost. Like, sir, I'm not going to like oversimplify it and be like, there weren't decisions to be made. There were like often decisions revolve around like, can I wait a turn? Uh, should I spend this resource now? I, I, I lost games because I punted. I won games because I played one. I played well. All those things happened. Um, but the level of like back and forth and control that I expect out of Magic just wasn't there. My fault, though. I chose a deck that very much sidesteps that. Yeah. Um, in terms of like... But you do that because you think it's going to pay off, right? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I, I thought I was in an incredible position to win the tournament. Like, I, I think I was pretty favored in the mono green matchup i don't think it's like a slam dunk not as much as you would expect when you hear like lotus field versus mono green they do have right. very good tools um but you know I, I think i got a little unlucky in one spot and probably played a situation pretty poorly where like i'll go into some detail here i don't know if a lot of detail service but essentially opponent plays damping sphere i have a lotus field out and i have uh, i had actually tutored for a on an earlier turn with an extra Sylvan Scrying. So like I float the mana, I blow up the Damping Sphere because I don't have an additional green source in my hand. But like doing that, I know that opponent just goes and gets Cauldron, is able to buy back the Damping Sphere, play it on the next turn. And then I like, at that point, I just win the game on the spot if I find another Beseju or the Natural State I sideboarded in or I have some way to like go get the Natural State from my sideboard. Once I find the green source, uh, which I did pretty quickly from that point. Like I, I find the green source, have it in play. So I'm just playing to the top deck. I win very easily if I hit any of those cards. I whiff, I lose. But what I actually should have done is just like let that moment happen further down the road. Like I should have just known at some point I have to find this green source anyway. So I should have waited on clearing the damping sphere uh, beside you at like an end of turn when I was ready to go off and then just win and not give a chance for cauldron to reload and i was sort of like fearing clock and i didn't feel like i had enough time to do that i wanted to make my opponent spend resources on the next turn doing the whole cauldron buyback sphere thing um but ultimately i don't think like i can win the game that way short of getting lucky and i think if i play a longer game i have a better chance of winning so that was a really interesting spot where i where i ended up probably i don't know if i cost myself the top eight but i think i could have gave myself better odds to get out of the position i was in so Um, did was the cauldron already there or did you make them have to like go Karn's in play Karn's in play yeah so you can just go tutor for cauldron use the back side of cauldron i don't know the name of it the green version i I understand but like say you don't do that then that frees up Karn to get something else something else that is presumably good against you yeah what i what i think you do is you get pithy needle in that spot and then like close off my outs a little like just play it a little slower and that's that's why i was like pushing the pace but I, I do think I probably leave myself more outs if I don't just slam the Beseju. I don't know. Like one of the things that happened a lot throughout the day was like, I found myself wanting to rebuild scenarios. So like if I had this level of experience with Lotus field, that wasn't just gold fishing. I think I would have known these things much, right? Like much colder. And when I rebuilt these scenarios, I often found I did get the correct conclu- conclusion in uh, like the time period I had, but I was doing it at that moment with a low confidence rate. I'm like, 
I see this other line. Maybe I should be doing this. And then I could have to spend 15 minutes after the match reconstructing in my head to find out, okay, I got it right. But maybe I got lucky to get it right. Like I, I wasn't super confident in my decision. Um, no, but you still arrived at that decision for a reason. And I, I th- okay. So your situation is interesting because I think a lot of people do what you did for the wrong reasons. It's like, ah, oh, it's like probably fine. And I'll draw a green source at some point and then they don't get punished for it. Yeah. And I think that what you're saying is like a smart person's rationale for what you should have done and why, but I think it's wrong because forcing them to go get cauldron and rebuy the sphere leaves you just having to to beat a sphere versus having to beat sphere and a needle on the thing that represents the majority turn. of your outs. Yeah. No, it, it, it's true. Maybe, maybe I just had it right in the first place. Uh, and, and that actually wasn't the line. And that's, that's what I haven't like rebuilt because it was like the last match I played. So I was just like, uh, I wouldn't say I was cranky, but I was just like done with the tournament at that point. Like yeah, I, yeah. I got in my car. And yeah. Left. You're like, I just want to turn it off and think about yeah. other stuff. Yeah. So interesting, but like those, those moments came up a lot with Lotus field. So like that aspect of the tournament, I, I did quite enjoy like thinking about things afterwards. Uh, I didn't like some of the people there. Like, I don't know why I, there's just like this weird thing that I hadn't experienced in a long time. Cause I don't play local magic tournaments where like people want to prove themselves so badly. They want to be right so badly. And they're so like loud and offensive about it and just like inserting themselves over and over. And it was just like, just chill, like chill. You don't, if we're, if we're going to have a conversation and you have something interesting to say, it'll come up. Like you don't have to keep interjecting and like shouting it across the room. And I even had like a really weird interaction where like I'm playing someone and that person's friend sits down and is just like saying that my deck is unplayable. And it it was so like like his friend is like oh we didn't i wish we tested against lotus field and the kids are like, lotus field's unplayable and i'm like well, i think it's quite good and he's like no it's completely unplayable maybe it's like tier four and i'm like uh now i at this point i'm like i have dick mode fully engaged and i'm like well, yeah. i'm gonna go ahead and, and trust my opinion a little bit more than i trust yours and uh it, but it was just like so uncomfortable like i don't want to do that it's so uncomfortable to even be involved in the situation yeah and it's like why are you even here like why are you here interjected in someone else's match like your shitty opinion that is both wrong and annoying i and it, it wasn't the only time throughout the day i i saw this happening not only to me but to like other players who like very clearly didn't want to be subjected to their opponents bemoaning or you know i heard a guy like loudly explaining ev to someone who very clearly didn't care and saying how his expected results are so much higher than what he got and it it was just like miserable the attitudes i saw so like magic players be better like I, i just haven't been feeling this like weird crankiness around like my gaming moments recently and it was really jarring to be subjected to it so uh that sucked the actual setup of the tournament was it was in a nice place uh the administration of it was suspect at best i tweeted about this we got to the top eight and <laughs> yeah, the CEO was just this. he's just like yeah i uh i did something wrong with the reporter and i can't fix it so we're just gonna pair like this and we were all like no, you have to pair by, you know, seating going into the top eight. 
And Tio's like, I can't do that. I can't rewind it. So we're going to have to do it like this. And we were all just like, no, it's going to be like this. And we just sat down and started playing our top eight matches. And like someone actually like got a bracket maker on their phone and showed it to the TO and was just like report like this afterwards. Um, so that was weird. That's, um, that's gas, though. Yeah, no, it, I mean, we're fortunate that we had like I recognized a bunch of the folks who were in top eight. I like some of them are my friends. Uh, a couple of people are people I play flesh and blood with all the time. A couple of people are like old heads from back. How, in did, the day who's like, how did tier four Lotus Field dude do? I uh, did not make top eight. Shocker. Yeah, must have probably got unlucky if I had to guess. Yeah. Um, but well, let me let me explain to you expected value. OK, yeah, please do. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, it was just like a bunch of people who like knew their way around a magic tournament. And so when there was talk of pairing just randomly, we were just like, no, that's not. And we literally literally just went rogue and like determined the tournament on our own, which is like. If it was a different TO who was like more assertive, it could have gotten problematic, right? Where oh, they were yeah. just like, dude, that, so I, this is how Cedric got banned, <laughs> more I, or less. Sure, sure. I mean, like, but but we were very clearly in the right, but ultimately, like, they're the one running the tournament, so it's a weird position to be in, and that wasn't good. Uh, as I mentioned, we had like a uh, in the top eight match, uh, my opponent resolved storm the festival wrong. We realized it and just like. I we I, th- I could tell like we didn't even say it out loud, but we had the same moment of thought where we're like, it's like we're, don't like, don't even bother, we'll fix it ourselves. Yep, yeah, we thought about calling a judge. I'm just like, it's not worth it. Like we're just gonna do this, which is something I never do, by the way. Like I'm very big on like following the proper procedure. It goes with like administration of game state, where like right. raise your hand, call a judge, but it just wasn't gonna work in this scenario. <laughs> like it was just gonna add complication, and like, and like we knew the fix, we knew how to get to where we needed to be, trusted each other, so. Did it that way. And, and that kind of stuff is like, it feels, again, infrastructure. All the infrastructure is gone. Like, none of the setup is there to properly run these tournaments. We only got 20 people, which I will tell you the last time I played a PTQ in my area. Like, this is a full PTQ, so it's a little different. But, like, the last PTQ I remember playing it in Albany had, like, 150 people. And now we get 20. Like, that's a huge drop off. It was actually uh, less than we had for the Flesh and Blood Road to Nationals the week before, hmm. which was run in a smaller store. So, like, that's, you know, anecdotal, definitely very small, but uh, pointing to maybe this system is either not being advertised well enough or it's too hard to find these events because it was just locals. Like, there was nobody traveling for this thing. Um, weird. It's just, it's just very weird, very weird vibes from the tournament. And, a little disappointing and not exactly what I was expecting. So granted, uh, had sort of the same experience in, you know, Northern Virginia and then like the Maryland PTQ was a little bit bigger, but I think that that area also has like a lot of stores with a lot of PTQs that were happening on the same weekend. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure how much that affected things. Yeah, we had, I know there was one going on in like Massachusetts, but uh, I don't know. You just think like some like people from Syracuse, you would think maybe would come in or something like I, I don't know. It just there was just no travel whatsoever. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's maybe this is putting into perspective how loud the Twitter magic sphere seems to be compared to reality. But I remember people being like really hyped for this stuff. And it was like, oh, yeah, everyone's going to be out playing at these things or whatever. And then you show up to the tournaments and it's just like they're not even close to capping. Right? Yeah. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I fully appreciated playing a 20 person tournament. Oh, with yeah. like a, a PTQ qualification on the line. That's that's great. It's kind of like what I want the system to be. But the TO even mentioned like we're we're paying for this. And like, how long are these stores going to pay for these packages to get 20 people in their store? I, I don't think very long, honestly. Yeah, it is. It is such a joke that they have to pay for it. Uh I don't yep. know. It's, it's like I, I get that wizards, you know, again, tin tinfoil hat or whatever, and this is not actually happening. But like, you could reasonably tinfoil hat this, where it's like, oh yeah, wizards is trying to kill LGSs so they can move everything to Amazon, blah blah blah, whatever. It's like obviously that's not true, but mm-hmm. in there used to be a time when they needed LGSs to survive yes, because they needed they places the to sell the product. Yep. And I guess that is no longer the case, and now. They just don't have to care really at all. I mean, compared to what they used to when they still didn't even really care because they just figured that everything would work out or if a store closed, another one would open. It didn't really matter. It didn't yeah. change things. Yeah. I, I There's just like a part of me that despite all evidence, I still believe all this shit really matters. I think it matters a lot. And I think it matters long-term. And I think it matters five years from now, even if it doesn't matter right now. So. I, but I've been saying that for five years now. So who, who knows? Maybe I'm just an old idiot who doesn't understand the business of card games anymore. But uh, I, I know that the card game I'm working for is doing things very differently. And it is it is working. And I feel like people appreciate it. And that feels good. Like it feels like they are uh, investing in the product for those reasons. And it feels like we're, we're partners with LGSs and we're helping them while they help us. And it's just like a a better feeling. So. You know, we talked about potentially re-rebranding when mm. Arena kind of went to shit. Yeah. And I think I have the name for our podcast. Drop it on me. And I'm I'm going to coin a term here. But you keep keep weaving in some some fabaganda. I do. Uh so this is now the fabaganda podcast. Ah, I like it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Man, I just want to I just want to share things I like with other people. There's there's no propaganda. I'm just I'm happy. I I found a, I found a spot where like all the things I've been complaining about for years, they were like, yeah, you're right. Those things suck. Let's fix it. And I know, I'm, I'm but really also, happy about at the it. same time. It sounds like you're recruiting for a cult. I know. I know. I, but like, how do you and, like, and yes, I how know do you share something you love without doing that. Like, it's really hard. Right? I know. I know. I mean, I'm trying to do that. To you right now. With right. So. Right. You're trying to get me involved in, in various gotcha games. You got me with Marvel Snap. I, I joined that cult. I'm completely invested now. I got yeah, rewarded Snap, with Snap is legit Hellcow good. and Ghost Rider. So. Snap is legit good. And then they just <laughs> incidentally introduced a gotcha system. And it's just like, yeah. damn it. Why? Don't, don't do this. Like yeah, this, the, gotchas, the gotchas are hunting you at this point. This like, was they're like, just finding you. This is like nice and pure and wholesome, right? And then you're just like, uh, predatory banner. Yep. And people are like, yeah, sure, I guess, whatever. Yeah, I was um, surprised. They, they they actually went full banner. It was it was pretty wild. Oh my god. I I dude, I did not expect that. Yeah. They they said they said Nexus event. I was like, oh cool. Like tournament. Yeah. I was thinking like tournament type yeah, deal. Yeah, I was thinking like draft or something. It's just like nah. <laughs> nope. Nah, just give, a straight give up gotcha banner. I did yeah. I did three polls with the gold I had. I okay. got card boosters three times. I'm just like F this, never again. I, mean, I didn't even try. I didn't even try. I did. I did because I don't know. 
Because you're a sucker for well, gotchas. I didn't you're trying to recruit everyone to the cult of gotcha. I'm trying to recruit everyone to the cult of fab, and that's how it goes. <laughs> I think gotcha is predatory and awful, man. Uh, mm. I, I wish it didn't exist. It just so happens that like so many of the games also really feed my dopamine addiction. So, mm -hmm. yeah, they're good games. They are. I just wish they would remove the predatory aspects of them. And sure. Because those exist, I don't feel like I can recommend them wholesale. You know. Do you do you distinguish between like? I think we could probably do a full podcast on this, but do you distinguish between gotcha mechanics and like booster packs? Like, do you see them as meaningfully different? Uh, not really, no. But I, so for, for magic specifically, it's a little bit different because they do have resale value and it's not, it's not terrible. It's like, if you, if you want to hustle and do the work, which let's be real, no one does. Um, but you, you could recoup like 70% of it. Right. So it's not, right. it's not like anyone is out there spending like, you know, $20,000 trying to get like a specific piece of loot where if they brick, they have nothing. And even if they get it, they have nothing. Right. It's like, well, at the end of it, I guess you have a bunch of uh, like mythics and whatnot. And you can sell some right. of that stuff and whatever. Right, right. But I, I've definitely seen it where, you know, someone's complaining about how they can't make rent and then they buy a booster box or whatever. And then they don't get the thing that they want when the card's $20 or whatever. They could have just bought the card, right? But they're like, buy a box. And then it's like, oh, didn't get it. Uh, all right, give me give me another pack. Yeah, no, the the scratch off behavior is one hundred percent there yes. with booster packs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom occasionally bought some scratch offs, but it was never like, oh, I lost, gotta buy another one. It was like mm -hmm. we're poor as hell, and I hope I win a K or whatever. Right. And and a, a dollar doesn't change whether or not we can pay rent. So yeah, I, so I understand mm -hmm. that. But no, yeah. my, my experience with like that was so when we were growing up, my mom like worked in gas stations and would have to like bring us to work with her sometimes because there was no one to watch us while like my dad worked. So we would sit in like, I don't know, a, a table in the corner of the gas station waiting for my dad to pick us up. And I would like just watch the people who came in and people would just like sit at the counter with her for. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, hours i worked in gas stations for years i know okay so you it. saw it firsthand yeah. yeah it's wild and i i saw a little bit of it when i was bartending we got like one of those i don't know if you have them in your state but like quick draw machines which is basically like a lottery that just happens every 15 minutes uh pull tabs um, was what we had in minnesota yeah. yeah 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 so that's like the equivalent that's like the non-state sanctioned version um but yeah it was uh really really bad behavior you saw quite often and i see it very much mirrored with like the booster pack thing dude it's so absurd that just thinking back on it right is that what's there to do in this town nothing there's a bar all right go to the bar uh i'm gonna sit and drink alone starting at like 6 p.m right yeah and also we sell lottery tickets here uh so you're just like getting hammered and then lowering your inhibitions and making bad decisions and it's just like you want another bull tab all right you know this is like wow yeah it's like I'm, I'm gonna get you drunk and separate you from your money you know it's just wild to me it is it is quite wild i actually remember for a period when like our bar got the uh like vending machine for the scratch offs in it and we, we would take like piles of money at the end of the night like we all shared our tips uh and it, this was like a pretty big club so you'd have like literally just like buckets full of money 
at the end of the night and someone would just go and be like, I'm going to put this bucket into this machine and just like feed the machine. And then we'd split anything we got on the scratch offs. And it's just the most ridiculous, worthless thing you could ever do. But we were like usually drunk at the end of our shifts and uh, with literal buckets of money in our hands. So it was exactly the situation you're describing where it's like, what else are you going to do? Yeah. And it's like, uh, I spent all my money on the scratchers. Uh, can someone give me five bucks for McDonald's? You know, it's like, yep. All right. See you tomorrow. <laughs> we'll do it again. Round two. One of these days, though, I'll win 50K. I don't think I've ever seen anyone win like 50K off of. Uh, I, I knew someone whose mother won the lottery. Oh, I, kn- I knew someone whose parents were already wealthy and they won the lottery twice. So, I mean, okay. They, they were not doing like, gas station spend 30 minutes you know there's a line of 10 people behind them all trying to get gas or like a bag of chips or whatever and they're just like well no actually give me 32 on the powerball because that's my niece's weight or whatever i don't know (laughs) a little malnourished there but okay Uh, like i don't know kilograms or something she's six i don't know if that (laughs) if that adds up um but yeah yeah it's they were just like oh let's let's play the powerball and they just kept winning but it's so weird you win like you know, $50 million or something when you're already a millionaire and then you're just like, let's keep playing the Powerball. And then you yeah, win again. That's so, that's so bizarre. So strange. And they're just like, oh, the taxes on this. So annoying. <laughs> How dare they tax my completely unearned money that I, I filled in some bubbles for. Oh, man. Uh, game? Yeah, I think we've hit the tangent quota enough to call it game. Good luck.